Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, it says that when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, of course, there is a lot to be said about these verses that are found here in Matthew chapter 16, between verses 13 and 19. There certainly is a lot that could be said. There are many doctrines, there are many beliefs that people have that are taken from this passage, and I'm certainly not going to take the time to try and address all of them right now. Right now, what I would like to do is spend some time talking about the subject of binding and loosing especially as it relates to the subject of spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare in the sense that people are engaging the enemy, engaging in battle, they are waging war against the enemy. And this is one of the passages in the scriptures that people will often refer to in order to try to give them some sense of authority, some sense of power, some strength by saying that they can bind the enemy or they can loose the enemy. Sometimes this section in the scriptures is referred to in order to support the belief that we are able to bind demons, for example. Now, of course, there could be some legitimacy to this to an extent. I don't believe that this is what the Lord Jesus was referring to when he spoke in this way to Peter, but there could be some validity to the idea that we might be able to bind demons or participate in their being bound in some way. However, in saying that, I do believe that there would be some great risk, some great risk, significant risk involved, if you were to try and engage a demon with this assumption, with this perspective, with this point of view, because if you fail to bind this demon you might find yourself having some significant problems. And so I would like to spend a few minutes talking about this as it relates to this passage, that people are looking at this and believing that this is what was perhaps intended by the Lord Jesus. He intended to say these things. I don't think so, and I'll come back to that in just a minute. But let's just assume for a moment that we do have the power to bind demons. Now, if we do, 
And this is a passage that we might refer to, that we have a similar authority as Peter was given in this perceived context, that we can bind demons. But if we are able to do that, then one of the questions that we should perhaps ask is, who's setting them loose? I mean, there certainly seems to be some evidence to show that there are still demons who are actively participating in our lives. There seems to be some evidence that would validate that. So if we have the capacity to bind them, or if somebody else had the capacity to bind them, who let them loose? Who turned them loose? Who's the one who set them free? If you consider that we have the power to bind them and we have the power to loose, as the Lord Jesus suggests here, then who's doing it? I mean, who's going around behind us and identifying those demons that we bind and they are setting them free? Or maybe we should be using something a little stronger to bind them. Maybe it's our fault. Maybe it's not that somebody else is setting them free. Maybe we should be using some stronger material of some kind. Or maybe we should be saying it with greater enthusiasm. Or maybe we need to add some things to our prayers in order to help solidify the fact that we bound demons. These are the kinds of things that people will begin to think about when it comes to this kind of activity, when it comes to these circumstances. Now, I don't believe that this is what the Lord Jesus was intending to say, but that doesn't mean that this belief is wrong, because there could very well be some circumstances where a person engages with a demon and declares that they are to be bound, and they might be bound in some way. Now, this could be accomplished in various ways. For example, the demon might feel intimidated in some way and might decide to stop whatever activity they are involved in, whether they are communicating in a verbal way or if they are inflicting someone, they might decide just to hold back a little bit. Maybe they've never encountered someone like you before, and so they may feel a little intimidated. That's a possibility. You could think of that as bluffing them, I suppose, in some ways, because you're certainly not going to be able to pull out your roll of duct tape and just start wrapping the demon up or something. You don't have access to the demon with your roll of duct tape, because we're talking about a spirit. And so they may feel a little intimidated at first, perhaps, who knows? They might respond in that way, as if you have the power to bind them, but they simply don't know what to do with the circumstances they have been confronted with, or you might not intimidate them at all. It might be that there is an angel nearby who does have that kind of access to the demon to be able to bind them with whatever material or in whatever manner they have the ability to do so. And so it might not be you at all. It might be an angel who would be there in order to do that. Now, I certainly do not believe that the angel is necessarily taking action by your command. It's my belief that the angels take command from the living God himself. And so I don't think that we are commanding the angels. I certainly would not want to participate in that either. But I do believe that the angels could very well be involved. Now, if it sounds like I'm not giving you an absolute answer concerning the ability to bind or loose demons, it's simply because I cannot give you an absolute answer. All I can do is caution you that should you find yourself in a circumstance such as this, I should caution you to be a little sensitive about what is true and what is not true and to understand that there might be some things that you are assuming that are not true and you might experience 
some consequences as a result of that. And so I'm just saying this in order to encourage you to try and be a little sensitive when it comes to these kinds of situations. Now, of course, these situations are not very common. It is actually unusual, or at least I find it to be unusual, to find someone who has encountered a demon, who has encountered a demon in a way that there is no question, no doubt whatsoever, that they are dealing with another person, another being of some kind. I do believe that the demons could be defined as persons to an extent, to the extent that they have a mind, they have emotions, they have a will, they obviously have goals in mind, they are actively participating in the lives of people, they are making decisions. I certainly don't believe that there's some kind of virus or cooties or something like that. The demons are definitely beings. They are spiritual beings who live in a different plane or in a different aspect of the universe that God has created. Now, I do believe that considering this, it appears that our God would like us to be somewhat isolated from them, considering that we do not encounter them very often. I think it's reasonable to assume that the Lord would not want us to encounter these demons very often. And there could be a number of reasons why they would not want us to encounter them either. One of the reasons why I believe it would be in their interest for us not to encounter them is that we will not believe that they exist. If we never run into them personally, we might easily assume that they don't exist at all. So if they do not exist, that can give them a distinct advantage if they are at war with us. If we are at war with them and we don't even think that they exist, how well are we going to be able to engage and respond to the conflict, to the battles, to the war that we are actually participating in? So I'm going to spend some time talking about the subject of spiritual warfare because I really do believe that there is a spiritual warfare, a spiritual war that is taking place. And I believe that you and I are participants in this war, whether we know it or not, whether we believe it or not, and that we should at least be aware of the reality of it and to understand that there are consequences related to what we do, what we don't do, what we believe and what we don't believe, that there can very well be some consequences related to those things as it relates to the war that we are presently in. And so, let me just say this, that if you encounter a demon of some kind, for some reason, and I certainly do not want to encourage you to pursue this, I don't think it's a pleasant experience at all. And I personally have encountered and engaged a number of demons. I have done this in the past, and I certainly do not look forward to doing this in the future if it is in my future. I personally would rather not participate in that aspect of the war, if I don't have to. But if you find yourself in a circumstance where you are confronted with this kind of a situation, you should definitely consider asking the Lord to be with you, asking Him to participate with you. Ask Him for some angels who will come down and help participate in the conflict that you are in. And don't tell the demon that you're going to bind them. Instead, perhaps consider asking the Lord if he, plead with him that he would bind the demons on your behalf because you are not the one who has that kind of access to them.
The words of your mouth are not the same as an angel engaging the demon in a way that they can in that part of our realm, in that part of our existence that they are able to function in. For example, consider a circumstance described in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 13, it says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, which of course I've got to tell you something about, I'll tell you about them in in a little while, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So these demons certainly were not very well intimidated by these exorcists, and so you might consider that when you encounter one of these demons, if you do, which I, again, would like to encourage you to avoid if you can, but if you do, be aware that they might not be that impressed with you as much as you might think that you are impressive. Now, going back into the beginning of this passage that I just read, it says, itinerant Jewish exorcists. Who were these guys? I mean, who were these guys really, right? I mean, where do these guys come from? Where do you get a bunch of Jewish exorcists from? Well, it turns out that there was a belief. There was a belief that you could cast out demons in Pharisaical Judaism. There is a belief, it is a subset or a subculture within Pharisaical Judaism, and the people who participate in this subculture were referred to as the Kabbalists. The Kabbalah, the Kabbalists who participated or practiced in something referred to as the Kabbalah, was about this. It was about how could you get demons out of people's lives. Now, I realize that there are several derivations of the Kabbalah that are more suitable for celebrities and other people in our current modern age. But the real Kabbalah, the real stuff, and I have had some reasonable exposure to the Kabbalah to the extent that I know enough about it that I feel comfortable talking about the things that I do know. I did study under Kabbalahs for a short period of time just to learn about what it was and what it was about. There are real Kabbalists to this day that have nothing to do with the celebrity stuff that you usually see in the news or on talk shows or whatever. The idea of the Kabbalah, the idea of it is that you can set people free from spiritual oppression and that there are ways, there are procedures, there are ceremonies and sacraments, there are various things that a person can participate in and engage in in order to get these demons to to depart. And so this is where the Jewish exorcist comes from. And there was a simple procedure that people would follow in general, a very simple procedure This is just a general description of what you would engage in if you were a Kabbalist. And that would be that you would first establish communication with the demon. You would first establish communication in the sense that you would converse with the spirit to acknowledge the fact that he knows that you are there, you know that he is there, but to also identify the name of the spirit. That was the idea behind that. 
And then once you were able to identify the name of the Spirit, then you could demand in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the Spirit depart. And there was a belief that the Spirit would depart. And it could very well be that there were spirits who did depart. Now, we have no way of knowing if they departed because they were intimidated or they departed because an angel poked at them and told them to get lost. That could very well be the case. Or they might have left voluntarily just to give the Kabbalists some belief that they actually had authority that they didn't really have. It could be all three of these things, depending upon the situation. And I have no way of evaluating those circumstances to know for sure. I can only speculate because, again, this is outside of the boundaries of the natural realm that we as people operate within. There are limitations that prevent us from being able to answer these questions. But I can say that there has been a number of circumstances where I personally believe the evidence has shown that the demons voluntarily departed in order to give an individual authority or a belief that they had authority so that the doctrines and the teachings of that individual could be perpetuated, which would put other people in bondage in a different way, in a way that would be more damaging, that would cause more destruction than the individual being possessed by the demon beforehand from whom the demon left in order to give the person who was exercising the demon some sense of credibility. Now, this certainly is a very esoteric belief. It's an esoteric sect. It was never well accepted within Pharisaical Judaism and still has not been, and so they are relatively quiet about their beliefs and their practices. And one of the reasons why is because to identify a demon's name and to speak the demon's name could very well be a violation of the law. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 13, for example, it says, And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Now, the Kabbalist would say, well, they're not really gods. It's just a false belief. They're not identifying themselves as gods, they're just demons, and so that gives us a way out. And in that way, the Pharisees who do not believe in the Kabbalah, have somewhat been tolerant of the Kabbalists, at least to an extent. At that point, though, it becomes one of those situations of don't ask and don't tell. And in that way, they have been able to survive to this day. So I just wanted to mention that, that there is some history behind this, and there are reasons why the Kabbalists or the Jewish exorcists have never become popular and that this is a belief that has survived to this day. But, you know, one of the most important situations that is relevant to this is definitely the circumstance when the Lord Jesus healed the man who was born blind, deaf, and dumb. It was just before he announced that he would give no other sign to the people there in the land in order to support his messianic identity except for the sign of Jonah. It was in that situation, when he healed the man who was blind, deaf, and dumb, that he was fulfilling an expectation that the Pharisees, or more specifically, the Kabbalists of the Pharisees, expected the Messiah to perform, because they had no way to establish communication with the demon who was within a man who could not see, speak, or hear. There was no way they could establish communication with the demon through this individual, and so they asserted 
the belief that only the Messiah would be able to cast this demon out. And I explained this a bit in the programs that I presented in the accounting for the three days and three nights. That was the miracle that established the circumstance when he made the declaration that he would be in the grave for three days and three nights. And so you can listen to those programs to get more information concerning that subject. So I just wanted to make mention of this as it relates to this, that there has been a history of people who have believed that they have been able to cast out demons, but they may not really have been doing it. They might not have been successful. And this circumstance in Acts, in Acts chapter 19, is a way of saying, is a way of showing that they were deceived. They were deceived to an extent. So you might wonder, well, then, what's going on? I mean, can't we come up with something more concrete? I mean, if there are circumstances when people can cast out demons, and yet there are circumstances when they cannot, and we can never define, it seems, when we can or when we can't, because we don't even know if it really is us or if it is our beliefs or the word that we express or if it's their intent. If we cannot determine any of these things, then what's really going on? I mean, what would really be taken? Well, this is the issue, is that in the midst of the uncertainty, you had better know what the important things are in order to keep track of what might be going on or what might not be going on. To understand the nature of the battle helps you identify the risks that you are facing and to help you better identify the likelihood of whether there was a successful casting out or not, or whether this was a deceptive act or not, it is better to understand some other things first. You need to understand some other things in order to put these things that are uncertain into better context. First, you must identify the certain things, then you will be able to navigate your way through the uncertain things. This is what I want to spend some time talking about in these programs, is the certain things, so that we can perhaps identify a few things that are worth thinking about when it comes to the uncertain things. But if you fail to understand the real nature of the battle, you can spend an enormous amount of time in the uncertain things to the extent where you never deal with those things that are truly of significance, are truly of importance. And by default, you might increase the problems that we are faced with in the current age that we are in. And so please take some time to think seriously about those things that we should definitely be focused on and stay focused on those and keep those in mind. Let me give you an example One of the objectives of the devil is to put you into bondage in some way. One of the ways that he can put you into bondage is by getting you to believe something that isn't true. Now, what would that be? Well, you know, sometimes it doesn't even matter. Sometimes it doesn't really matter. He can pick lots of things and he'll preoccupy you with whatever. But there are times when those things do matter a lot more than they would otherwise. For example, if he can get you to believe that God does not love you, what do you suppose the impact will be in your life if that's the case? If he gets you to believe 
that your God does not love you, then how are you going to grow and mature in your faith? This is a reasonable example. I want you to think about this and consider the implications related to this. While people are preoccupied with trying to figure out how to bind a demon or loose a demon, while they're preoccupied with these things, they can easily forget about the significance of whether or not they recognize and believe and live in the truth that God loves them. What are going to be the consequences in a person's life if they believe that God does not love them? This is what I mean. It's very easy to get distracted by the important issues, the certain issues, the issues through which we can define certainty, certainty of importance, certainty of definition. And so when we are confronted with all of these uncertain things that will take us further away from the love of God, we can at least put those uncertain things in their proper context and in their proper place. And so regardless of how those circumstances derive or evolve or are concluded, we can still identify that which is important, and that is to rest in the love of God. Please understand that when you are in a battle, when you are at war, when you are in a conflict, you are normally dealing with someone who has some sense of strategy and a very powerful strategy that an enemy can use, or that you can use even, is to get you preoccupied with one thing so that you are distracted by that one thing and so that you engage in a certain direction, in a certain way, and so that you are distracted in such a way that they can attack you and succeed in another way. This can be a conflict when it comes to the subject of spiritual warfare, that you might be very preoccupied with the details concerning whether you are casting a demon out or not, are you engaging with a demon, are you not, in what way do you do battle with them? Yes, these can be significant, even though there is a lot of uncertainty. But what about the issues related to the gospel? Are you successfully communicating the gospel or not? And I will continue with this in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net Thank you,